Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. Here are your hosts, Bill Fraser and Tony Sartu. Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. I'm Bill. And I'm Tony. And we're going to explore our love of music by sharing some facts and our thoughts on some of the best albums of all time. And today's album is All Things Must Pass by George Harrison. All Things Must Pass was released on November 27, 1970. It was number 437 on Rolling Stone's list in 2003, moved up to 433 in 2012, and is now sitting at number 368 on the 2020 list. And and this is my problem with the Rolling Stone list. There's, there's no way this album is only in the top 400. It, it is a much better album than that. Yeah, it, it's. I think The Guardian did a uh, list where they listed the top 10 albums, not on the Rolling Stone top 100, and this was number nine. So there seems to be a gap between what Rolling Stone thinks of this album and what maybe the rest of the world does. So as far as basic sales information goes, it uh, has certified sales of 3.7 million which confused me because I kept seeing that it was a seven-time platinum album. And then I realized that because it was a double and and technically a triple album, you know, they uh, multiply it out for the the double album. I didn't know they did that. That's interesting. Yeah, so that's why you'll see seven times platinum, but it's really only 3.7 million units sold. The album was recorded between May and October of 1970, and it was released on November 27th of 1970 and it was uh, on apple records that's the beatles production company and it was produced by george harrison and phil Spector. so tom why don't we talk a little bit about 1970 itself and set the context for the year so 1970 is right in the heart of the vietnam war and 1970 is the year that the beatles break up officially it's also the debut of the jackson five on american bandstand and it's a year when the voting age is reduced from 21 to 18. Doonesbury is brand new. First year. The Apollo 13 happens. The EPA is established. And Richard Branson founds Virgin Group. Wow. In TV, Marcus Welby, The Flip Wilson Show, and Here's Lucy are top television shows. And in the movies, Love Story, Airport, and MASH are the top movies of the year. In sports, Kansas City won the Super Bowl. Baltimore won the World Series. The Knicks. What? The Knicks won the NBA championship. Unbelievable. And for anybody who's a baseball fan, it was a huge year because it's the year that Kurt Flood filed his suit that actually led to free agency in baseball. So interesting year. For sure. And the year was also interesting in music as well. There were 12 distinct number one albums. The biggest seller for the year was Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. The year began with Abbey Road at number one, and it ended with Abraxas by Santana at number one. Other number one albums for the year were Led Zeppelin II, Deja Vu by Crosby, Stills & Nash, McCartney, his solo album, which kind of really put the uh, final stamp on the end of the Beatles, Let It Be, which came out after McCartney and was number one after it, but was recorded before. Uh, the Woodstock soundtrack, Blood, Sweat, and Tears 3, and Cosmos Factory by CCR, and then finally Led Zeppelin 3. Well, and there are a bunch of interesting albums that year, Tone. Uh, on top of that, you've got Miles Davis, Bitches Brew, 
um, the Stooges Funhouse, Van Morrison Moondance. So there was there was a lot of interesting stuff that year. And as far as the singles go, the top single was Bridge Over Troubled Water. Uh, number two was Close to You by Car- the Carpenters. Just like me, they long to be close to you. La la la. la. Uh, number three, American Woman by The Guess Who. You know, you are we, because of our age, think of uh, Lenny, Lenny Kravitz. Lenny Kravitz version, yeah. yeah. Um, but this is the original. Number four was Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head from B.J. Thomas. And that's from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And then number five was War by Edwin Starr. <laughs> good God! <laughs> what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. <laughs> Uh, other notables uh, in the top 100 uh, number 7 and number 15 were I'll Be There and ABC by the Jackson 5 number 9 was Let It Be uh, number 33 is The Original Venus by Shocking Blue and and I gave that a listen last night and I forgot what a really good song that song is I think both the original and the cover are awesome so I, I agree and the last song that I want to mention is Candida by Tony Orlando and Dawn. And I listened to that song last night and it just brought me back to my childhood and made me really think about the fact that, you know, my dad grew up loving the Beatles. But then as we keep doing these shows, I think back to my childhood and I realized that I never heard the Beatles growing up. I didn't either. Ever. Yeah, I didn't either. And I couldn't connect the dots on why my dad loved the Beatles and yet we never listened to it. But I was thinking about this song, and I heard this song a million times growing up. I, I can't say that I remember it. I'm, I probably have heard it, but I just I can't say that I remember it. But I do, I do want to add that I just, driving down the turnpike, there's a big billboard. Tony Orlando is actually still doing shows. And he's and, probably killing it. And he's probably killing it. <laughs> so that's it for the singles. Bill, do you want to tell us your personal history with this album and George? So my personal history with this album and specifically George Harrison is really very much related to my Rolling Stone top 500 album listens. I, I had not listened to this specifically ever. Um, I had heard a few of the tracks on the album, but I had never listened to the album end to end. And I didn't really have a lot of experience with George Harrison. Uh, he was the quiet Beatle and ne- never really thought of him too much really before listening to this album end to end and it blew me away when I listened to it and really came to appreciate specifically his artistry and what he brought to the Beatles and it really when I re-listened to Beatles music it really made me think how much they really were a band and not just John and Paul. Well for me the my favorite two favorite Beatles songs for a long time now have been Something and Here Comes the Sun which are both George tunes. So my my guitar gently weeps, my, which my is favorite. also fa- oh, really that's your favorite. Yeah, it's a fantastic song. So basically, our favorite Beatles songs are the George songs, which uh, then doesn't uh, surprise me as you know I come to think about this album and and even before this album, growing up as as a teenager when the Wilburys came out, loved uh, absolutely loved, loved the Wilburys. The Wilburys, yeah, agree. And I loved the Wilburys with no context for who George. I mean, I know knew who he was, but I didn't you know appreciate him as a musician. He was just 
you know, the one of the Wilburys. In, yeah, oh, it's the, Will, yeah, exactly. Wilburys, yeah. You know, so, um, but that, especially that, that first Wilburys album is, is amazing. And, and I know that we're going to talk about that in our uh, interview uh, later on a little bit. So as far as my history goes, my two favorite Beatles songs are George's songs, Love the Wilburys, Never Listen to All Things Must Pass. But then um, the last personal note is that If Not For You is me and Colleen's wedding song. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Well, you didn't realize it because um, we didn't use George's version. Colleen has this bias towards singer-songwriters, and, and she wanted to honor the original author of the song. So we picked the Dylan version, which is fine, but it's not, you know, it's Dylan singing. So how good can it be? All right, so that wraps up our personal history. So we'll get to the album recording information and the art. So I mentioned the album was recorded in 1970, and it was recorded first at Abbey Road Studios and then later finished at Trident Studios. And isn't it amazing how many of these albums, we've done 15 shows, and it seems like half of them had some connection to Trident Studios. So um, that's where it was recorded. We talked about who produced it. And really, it was a Hall of Fame or all-star cast of people who appear on this album just incredible. So some of the folks that are on here are Eric Clapton, and then a number of the guys that were in the band with him uh, at the time that would go on to become Derek and the Dominoes all play on this album. And and as we go through some of the tracks, I'm going to keep coming back to the fact that how many of these songs, a, a number of these songs sound so much like Clapton or Derek and the Dominoes songs, which is not a bad thing. No, not a bad thing at all. Yeah. Uh, other folks here uh, on the album were Gary Wright of Dreamweaver fame, uh, the band Badfinger, which was on Apple Records, so one of the Beatles' protégés, Alan White, who's the future drummer for Yes, Dave Mason, Peter Frampton, and just really uh, an incredible pull is Phil Collins. He's on The Art of Dying playing the bongos, and this was pre-Genesis, this was sort of like he's an you know, unknown sort of session musician coming in to play the bongos on All Things Must Pass. Well, and not to mention Billy Preston, who's kind of ever ever present on uh, some Beatles stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I had actually just seen uh, an interview uh, with Peter Frampton. And I, I, I hadn't, until I started looking into who was on the album, I knew, I knew Clapton was, and I knew, I knew you know, a, the all-star cast, but I didn't realize Frampton was on the album. And the, the interview with Frampton was like, yeah, he, he, I was uh, kind of palling around with uh, a couple of guys, and, they, and they, they said, hey, you know, George would like you to, you know, come into the studio. And he's like, George wants me to come into the studio. What does George want me to come into the studio for? So he thought he was just going to listen. And he came into the studio, and he's like, he knew Clapton was playing with them and whatnot, and he's like, you know, I'm not even going to try to imitate. I'd like you to play. In my- <laughs> You're not going to try? It was really bad, yeah. Uh, so so he, he, um, he asked him to play on the album. And he's like, but Clapton's playing on the album. He's like, well, you know, I, you can't play on every song, and I really want you to play on the album. And, and he was just blown away by the fact that he actually not only got to sit and listen and watch these artists play, but he actually got to be a part of it. And the fact that like a young Frampton is on this is like, holy cow. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the three guitarists on this album, you know, between uh, Harrison himself and Clapton and Frampton, like, holy cow, that's like the three of the best guitarists of all time. And that story that you just told reminds me of a story that we're going to hear later on with Laura talking about how the Wilburys got uh, put together. Very similar story. 
um, involving uh, Tom Petty. So tune in later for that. So, Bill, do you want to tell us about the album art? It's kind of a uh, noteworthy cover. Yeah, I do. Um, So Barry Feinstein shot the photo for the album cover. Um, He also shot a lot of other artists. So he shot covers for Dylan and Joplin and a lot and many, many others. The title and the cover are such a hat tip to moving on from the Beatles. All things must pass. Things move on. The visual of the of the album cover with George sitting on a stool with four lawn gnomes who are really kind of representing the Beatles and and him above them. It's it's just it's really a visual of like, I'm moving on. It's time for me to move on. It's a fascinating black and white album cover. And then when they did the reissue uh, 30 years later, that's the uh, now colorized. Yeah, they colorized. Yeah. All right. So we'll just do a quick artist background. I know we've talked a lot about uh, the Beatles in the Sgt. Pepper show. So I'll just mention how uh, when George uh, became acquainted with Paul, they were just school kids riding the bus to school. and, And George was a few years younger than Paul. So it was you know, sort of a, um, almost a little brother di- dynamic. And then when uh, Paul brought George to John, when they were working on putting together a band, you know, George was definitely almost like a second class citizen, like an afterthought, like almost like a mascot, um, wasn't taken very seriously. And, and that dynamic from the age of 14 plays out all the way through to the end of the Beatles. A hundred percent. And then you get to closer to when the album actually is recorded in 1968 Harrison goes to the US he spends time in Woodstock he becomes close with Dylan gets to see Dylan and the band and how they interact and really that's the first kind of thinking for him that at least you know a lot of the stories I've read is he sees the dynamic of how Dylan and the band are kind of equals in how they collaborate and he's like that's not that's not what I'm getting um, so he he was writing a lot and from 68 to 70, he starts working on extracurricular projects. And, and specifically in 69, he started working on extracurricular projects, one of which was working on Plastic Ono Band, which is Lennon's album. Um, and interestingly enough, in 70, when they were still working on Plastic Ono Band early in the year, Harrison asked Phil Spector to join him to come to the studio with, with him to, to help on one of Lennon's songs. And he helped on Instant Karma. And it really kind of led into the whole specter of it working on Let It Be and then being the co-producer on All Things Must Pass. Oh, really? So that's how Spectre that, yeah, came that's, into their that's universe? How, yeah, Harrison kind of brought him to, the, to that huh. Plastic Ono Band, you know, specific recording for that track. And it, it kind of led into them asking Spectre to put together the, you know, the, the sessions the you know that were that would wind up becoming the Let It Be album. Basically, the Get Back recording sessions would wind up becoming the Let It Be album, and that's you know if, if you watch on Disney Plus the Get Back Peter Jackson behemoth of a movie, you know what Phil Spector would wind up doing is kind of condensing that down to something that would be Let It Be, and people feel very mixed about what it wound up becoming. Um, well, some people really like it, and some people are like you know he. he Phil Spectered it, and mm-hmm. you know, but but that's that's what you got. So. Well, and you know, getting back to the specter of it all, the um, Harrison talked about you know thirty years later or, or during the uh, re-release that he regrets the all the echo and the all, wall, wall you know, of sound a stuff. Too yeah. much of it. Yeah, I, I personally on the songs where it's there, it's 
you know, a signature part of the music. So I don't have a problem with it at all, but I could see why he would think maybe it's a little bit too much. You're you're losing some of the musicality, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and I think, you know, the interview I saw similarly at the, the, the anniversary, you know, Harrison was talking about it and he said when he first heard a few of the songs, he hated them and they grew on him. And he, he, he actually appreciates what Spectre brought to it. But at the time, he was just like, I don't like this. So the only other thing I would mention is All Things Must Pass wasn't actually Harrison's debut solo. Harrison's debut solo was Wonderwall Music, which I didn't actually even realize that. And I'm, I'm like doing a jump in my head going, oh, I wonder if there's an, I wonder if Oasis actually took that because of the Harrison of it. And Has to, right? I'm, I'm thinking they had to have, yeah. Um, and it's an instrumental album. Really cool. I don't know if you had a chance to listen no. to it. Really cool album. Um, but he, he recorded that in 68. But he, he considers All Things Must Pass as his first mm-hmm. solo album. All right. So that brings us to our next segment, which is Something You Might Not Know. And rather than doing our normal nuggets that Bill and I bring to the table, we've brought in an expert ringer uh, for this uh, episode segment. We've got Laura Cantrell with us. She's the host of Dark Horse Radio on Sirius XM on the Beatles channel. So you can catch that show three times a week. Uh, I'm, I think we talk about that later on in the interview when you can catch it. But uh, Laura is not a Beatles expert, but she is a George Harrison fan and does host this show. And she gets uh, access to information directly from the Harrison estate and has interviewed uh, Olivia Harrison as well as other members of the family. So. She does bring a lot of stories about that you might not know that we didn't know, and we're really excited to have her on. So please enjoy our conversation with Laura Cantrell. All right, so we're super excited to have Laura Cantrell here with us to talk about uh, George Harrison. And we wanted to get your perspective because you are a radio host presenting a show every week on George Harrison and just wanted to ask you about that show and and how you got involved in it and just uh, pick your brain on some things, uh, George. Well, first of all, thank you for having me to your podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, yes, I do host a, pro- a weekly program about George Harrison on Sirius XM. I've done a lot of other radio stuff, mostly in community, community radio, which you obviously know from back from the, my WFMU days. But, you know, I guess I really think of myself overall as a music fan who has had a particular interest in country music, but with a really wide lens of how country music relates to other types of music. In fact, I remember actually even trying to explain this to my dad when I was um, first doing like DJ gig at, in, in college, and I was playing country music in New York City on college radio airwaves. And there was sort of a music nerd environment that was a WKCR. And so basically I was trying to explain to him what I had figured out coming from Nashville and being just kind of like a, a normal music fan and then going like, oh, so here's country music of Nashville is its own little world. And it can seem like, you know, it's a very insular thing. But then when you start looking at like the history of country music and alongside the other strains of American music with R&B and blues and um, all the things that basically make up the stew that rock and roll is born out of and how all of those things really influenced then 
um, other big music phenomenon like the Beatles. And this was exactly the instance I was saying to my dad, like, do you realize that like the Everly brothers and the Lubin brothers and the Monroe brothers, you can draw a line through all those brother harmony groups to the young Beatles hearing the Everly's and, you know, uh, other kind of close harmony. I don't know if they would have heard the Lubin brothers directly, but certainly through the Everly brothers, they would have been hearing that tradition of American country music and then taking it and doing their own crazy stuff with it. So that was my um, way of explaining to my dad what, why I was taking all my music stuff so seriously um, and was, and also relating my interest in country music to something outside of, of um, the country music world that, and try, try to just like see if it would register with him like that. This was something that I wanted to pursue, like a serious interest that I wanted to pursue. So he did kind of get it. And he was sort of impressed that the Beatles would have been influenced by some of these country artists that he had grown up listening to. And now maybe it doesn't seem like that kind of astonishing a connection, but back in, you know, this would have been like the late eighties, early nineties, when I was starting to do this stuff, you know, people didn't think about like lineages that way as much, you know, they were like, Oh, that's another genre. Oh, you know, Beatles are rock and roll and, and maybe Elvis is rock and roll, but you know, such and such is country and they're not related and they didn't, you know, see the connections as closely. So jumping forward to George Harrison, um, I always just instinctively thought of George as the country beetle, <laughs> mostly because of his, his very self-professed love of like Carl Perkins was such an influence on him. And also, um, because when he made All Things Must Pass, he hired one of the best pedal steel players in Nashville to come to England. And it's the only time that ever happened where, you know, Pete Drake flies to London to go play with uh, now just a very recently former Beatle on his first solo album. So can you imagine that, what that call must have been like for Pete Drake? Yeah, exactly. In fact, it's funny. I, I um, I've, I've never seen it written from his point of view, but I have... Uh, I forget now I'm, I'm forgetting the exact chain of events, but, but basically they, you know, kind of, I mean, I'm sure Pete Drake was playing every day. And so in Nashville and getting paid every day, like top rate to play on, you know, he could probably pay, play three sessions a day, maybe. So to go all the way to England, however, Dylan had already come to Nashville. So this is like, you know, early seventies. So they, they had seen a taste of how the rock and rollers from, you know, outside of the Nashville system made music and it was a different way and that it took longer. The sessions were long and sprawling. They weren't these like discreet little three hour things. Um, but I'm sure it was a great thrill to get to go play with the Beatles or with the Beatles with a Beatle, um, but with also all those other heavy musicians that were playing on All Things Must Pass. I think also just from the way, like I mean, he used a lot of it. And then there were certain things. There's a song I love um, called um, I Live For You, I think. That's an outtake from All Things Must Pass that has beautiful steel part on it. And But something about it, like they couldn't perfect it in the time that they were working on it to be releasable in George's mind. So it came out in like the all things this past, like big anniversary mm -hmm. edition later. Yeah. And I always think like that, you know, George was kind of experimenting with adding in these other elements that, um, and he'd done this, you know, with, uh, I mean, done it more, maybe more wholeheartedly with his um, immersion and in Indian classical music. Right. You know, it was a, it was an element he wanted to try. And obviously much later, he became a great slide guitar player himself, not a pedal steel player, but, you know, so he had these, you know, influences from country music that I, that he engaged with in a way more directly than 
than I would say the other Beatles did in their solo work. And so in my mind, again, ding, 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 George is the country Beatle. So that, that's a really interesting <laughs> connection that I, I actually had never made until doing a, a little research on his influences and seeing Carl Perkins, who you mentioned. The other thing for me that's really interesting with with George Harrison is that he actually goes and collaborates with a lot of the people that he found that were that he you know specifically said were influences to him. So, you know, I was watching a video where he did a song with Carl Perkins and and Clapton, and and there's like this really cool YouTube you know <laughs> of them working together. So it's really kind of neat to see some of that, and it must have been great to for him. I mean, with his fame, to be able to kind of connect the dots on a lot of those things. Yeah, and I think. You know, from, I mean, this is just still like a very outside view, but George seemed to like to bring people together. I mean, he certainly did that with his passion for Indian classical music and with working with Ravi Shankar and then all the Indian musicians that came through, um, both to play on recordings on his Dark Horse label and, but also in London when they did these big concerts that they would rehearse out at Friar Park with these, you know, um, classical musicians that were Ravi Shankar's recommendations that came from India, but that's a kind of well-known kind of reference chapter in George's development, but he did it throughout his career. And so, um, and he continued to do it. I mean, all the way up until the Wilburys, you know, it's uh, still like yeah. connecting with people and bringing, and in some ways like seeing where there was common ground to have fun playing music together. And I think that was really about finding this joyful place where you could trade ideas and, and, you know, he tried it to some degree with the Woodstock crew and, uh, you know, going to meet Dylan and well, not meet Dylan, but to go to play and kind of hang out with Dylan on Dylan's turf. So, you know, uh, that's something that, it seemed like George was more into exploring than, you know, Paul McCartney could just, you know, kind of go at anywhere and be Paul McCartney. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? So, but uh, George what, liked to seek out other, you know, scenes and kind of try to connect with them. But, and if you, you know, this is something I didn't realize so much, but he spent a lot of time in LA when he, you know, Dark Horse Records was formed in the early seventies and it was kind of this alternate home for him. Um, and he, also connected with the LA music scene, like of session guys who were playing on all those records, like Jim Keltner and Danny Korchmar and the guys that he then released on Dark Horse and Attitudes and these other, you know, groups. So he kind of, wherever he went, I think he kind of tried to do that, forging these connections and seeing what work it turned into and then trying to support artists that he loved himself or work with them to see if his fancy Beatle famousness could lift them up to some degree. So... Well, even with, you know, you're talking about Dylan, but, you know, I, I saw somewhere where Dylan was crediting him with sort of helping him revive his career in the 80s with the Wilburys. You know, even though he was famous and stuff, he hadn't really been producing new music and it helped him find a new course. And now, you know, we've all the three of us have all seen Dylan in the past 12 months and, you know, he's doing amazing new work. Well, I right. think Roy, Roy Orbison had good success after working with him as well. And he, he had been kind of quiet for a period of time too. So. Well, it's so interesting to me that, that all the, I mean, so I'm, you know, I'm of a certain age and the Wilburys came out when I was in college. So, um, and it was just such a fun, like the sound of it was so fun. And again, you know, this is me thinking of like, uh, George is the country Beatle. There he has, uh, you know, Tom Petty from Florida and who's not a country guy, but has, you know, some country mm-hmm 
roots and a lot of all the country artists now love Tom Petty and Tom Petty's a big influence on them. Um, but Roy Orbison, you know, a guy who recorded for Sun Records and he was in that, I mean, you know, they all kind of worshiped him, um, but, but they, you know, he did also get, you know, kind of recontextualized to a different audience by getting to hang out with Jeff Lynn and Tom Petty and, and George. So it's a whole, I mean, it was like kind of a love fest. Um, but I just also, I, I freak out about the Wilburys and on a few different levels. One is the total accidental nature of how they came to be, um, which if you want me to, to say a little bit about that, it, I can. That would be great. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. So basically Jeff Lynn from ELO is producing some kind of recording. I don't know if he's producing a record with Roy Orbison or a recording, but he's working with Roy Orbison and he goes to lunch and he says, Oh, I'll invite my pal, George Harrison to lunch. He's kind of like impressing Roy Orbison and also getting, you know, George is like, who wouldn't want to go have lunch with Roy Orbison. So they do that. And they start talking about a song that George Harrison owes his record label. It's going to be a B side to one of the songs from cloud nine. That's going to be a single and they need a B side. So the record label's like, we need that record. So George is like, kind of, it seems almost like nonplus, like, ugh, I've got to go back to the studio. It would be a lot more fun if I could do it with you guys, you know? And they sort of dream up this thing at lunch. And then they were like, well, where could we record it? Well, we can't get into any good recording studios on such short notice. So, oh, I've got an idea. Let's call Dylan, who lives, you know, in the next town over or whatever and we'll see if his recording studio and his garage is free and so they they call dylan and dylan you know i don't know how, what the exact time frame as was but you can think of it as like a sort of sun-kissed day or two maybe where this thing evolved it could have all been one day um but then on you know dylan basically agrees and then they're like all right well now we're going to do this thing right now and they're kind of getting into gear and they uh and george wants a guitar that he's left over at his pal Tom Petty's house. So he has to go by and pick it up while he's there. He says to Tom, you want to come in? I just jump in on this thing. We're just doing this thing this afternoon. Um, and so they go and it's literally like, you know, George had a kind of a partial song written and they finished the song together as a group in Dylan's garage studio that has some boxes that are marked handle with care. The song becomes called handle with care. You know, it's all so serendipitous and, and like, just, you couldn't really make it up to be that crazy sounding. Um, but then of course they finish it and realize, wow, we've all had fun together today doing this. Like, and for guys of that generation, they've been making music since they were teenagers, all of them. And, could be probably pretty jaded and feel like, ugh, this is, you know, I've got to turn in a single to the label, like, ugh. But they turned that into, wow, we got to spend time together and this was this fun thing and we collaborated and it was probably very different, certainly for Dylan, um, mm -hmm. but for all of them to try to be in that kind of group scenario. Um, so anyway, that, that, you know, just very serendipitous, like turn of a few little you know, connections and events into recording this one song that then when George Harrison turns it into his label, they're like, well, this isn't a B-side, <laughs> you know, <laughs> handle with care. This is a, this is like a, something that should be part of a different, you know, better project. And so, or its own thing. And that's, you know, when they kind of figured out whether they could make it a longer recording and kind of work, keep working together. So, um, 
But the, here's the thing that really freaks me out about all that. If that none of that was, you know, kind of not enough to be just like seem extraordinary, but they're all the, the all of them were like, you know, forty something. Like I, I'm, I'm just. It, it's was funny, the they, probably. They, but they, they like thinking back. Like I remember when that came out as well. They felt so old at the time, <laughs> but they right. weren't. <laughs> they weren't. They were so young, and they were so. But they'd already had like ten careers. Each of them, you know, phases of careers and different things i mean it must have seemed like a long time since they really kind of had fun <laughs> doing what they did in a in a in a professional terms you know so or or with something new that then they that would that would become you know a, a new type of project that then they could promote as a new thing so i just the idea of them as being these like oh jaded old family guy you know they're they're just young guys raising their kids literally with all little kids and yeah. You know, yeah, because um, that would have been 88 or so. Right. right. You know, so yeah. Jeff Lynn has only been around for 15 years, maybe, you right. know, I mean, I mean, he was that- probably the baby of them in terms of career recognition. And but basically, you know, they're none of them are are like they're barely middle aged, like they're yeah. barely middle aged, you know, and that's what freaks me out. Because, again, like you think of them, I mean, George Harrison went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with handle with handle with care on the charts and so he seemed like this old guy from the beatles you know Mm -hmm. several generations ago yet here he is with this contemporary hit with these guys so i i just love that about them and that i mean it's just different today or maybe my career is different and i'm not i wouldn't even compare myself to those guys it really in any way at all but the idea of them being so young and yet so experienced and then going on to continue going. Yeah, I don't know. There's just something really cool about it that, you know, it kind of messes with my idea of like, what is longevity and what, you know, it can, it can mean different no, things right. to different people. So yeah. anyway. No, it's, well, it's, you know, it's really interesting because again, I hadn't thought of it that way. Like, you know, we've all seen Dylan recently and I think of him as old now, but I, I thought of him as old then and he wasn't right. like he was to your point, <laughs> middle aged, right? So, right. And barely so just yeah. beginning to yeah, be just barely. Yeah. Barely so. And I can't help but wonder if those collaborations and exploring new things helps, you know, rejuvenate or, you know, uh, kickstart those creative juices in a different way. Well, I definitely think, I mean, I I would never presume to speak for Bob Dylan, but he certainly was having a crisis at that time of like, if I'm going to go on tour and play my old music, he didn't want to do that. So it gave him an opportunity. I don't, and I actually don't know how much the Wilburys ever, if they ever really toured, I doubt they doubt they really nah, did. I can't imagine, yeah. But they got to do some things, some TV and whatever, playing new music. And, and it might have reminded Bob that he liked to do that and that he was fig- he was on his way to figure out, and I think it's probably as he's gonna about to go on tour with the dead eventually, because I, I did see um, a dead show with uh, with Dylan opening in in new york city so that was like in that same kind of time frame he was trying to figure out like how do i play the old songs that people expect to hear from me but not bore myself to death every night and so that was cooking in his mind um anyway so it it must have just been all part of the process of like another wave of reinvention so that you continue doing what they wanted to do so Along the reinvention lines, one of the things that I'd be interested in your perspective on is what you saw from 
George Harrison from Beatles to beyond and like the, the, the different genres he, he touched on. I mean, obviously the Indian influences and, and Ravi Shankar and, you know, the, the country connections, you know, from all things must pass to the albums that he, he did after that. I mean, what, what are the types of things that you were hearing in his music that it's like, Oh, he was experimenting with, with different things. I mean, is there anything that jumps out at you? Well, I actually think of it more in terms of, and I mean, this is kind of maybe somewhat influenced by having seen some of the get back um, film, uh, which I'm sure you guys also saw some of, and yep. they have talked about already. <laughs> some of, some of his uh, operative phrase. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a lot. Um, but I, I don't, I think, you know, I'd, I'd already always accepted the narrative, like, you know, they had John and Paul, so they didn't need Georgia songs. And, and so eventually he went and did his own record. Like I've known, no, you know, all that, but, but in watching get back, you realize he's incredibly creatively stymied in the Beatles and it's very real and palpable. And it's, it's personal to some degree also like there, I mean, George, I, I felt like having, um, you know, done Dark Horse for a little while before the Get Back came out, like hearing George Martin articulate like, okay, well, George needs to understand, and he's talking about George Harrison, he needs to understand that John and Paul are our guys, you know, like he effect, in effect says that. So you realize like, oh my God, it wasn't just like a, a sentence in history. It was an incredible, weird dynamic of being kind of like just pushed aside, but needed for being brilliant on to support other people's songs so you know i think of obviously all things has passed as this like sort of watershed moment for him where he just gets to go and put it all together and be free and do his thing and and then it's kind of nuts that he's doing that and then there's phil specter like it's just so weird um that like that he even would need phil specter but i'm sure at the time it seemed like kind of another part of the armor to like really right. make make this thing be awesome well, the well, fact you know, that they were sitting on all of those, uh, those I mean, he was sitting on all of those songs and they, to your point, they weren't interesting to the Beatles. I mean, they played them in some of those get back. Right. Uh, you know, you, you, oh, could hear, you could hear like a lot of the songs that are on All Things Must Pass. And it's like, oh my God, these are just amazing songs. It's right. one of my favorite albums ever. And it's like, not, not interesting to the Beatles. Like, right. just crazy. Right. It's, it's not that, that, you know, he'll be playing something and then Paul's over on the piano doing something else and totally not to, you know, like not even bothering to really listen. And I mean, that that's obviously that's not quite what was happening because of the way that film is made. It is, it sort of condenses some things, although <laughs> it could have condensed more, <laughs> Did it? <laughs> but, um, but Laura, what, what you're saying also makes me think of just, sibling rivalries and birth order and because right. george one of the big things is you know he he was like 14 or whatever when right when he's he the met baby those guys. Yeah. so even though you're now grown men and you're he's you know incredible that's not how they see him in my right. opinion i mean i don't know but that's how i imagine it it's just right. oh yeah there's just george right right it's yeah you know and it's almost i mean it wasn't so they clearly valued him and needed you know paul wants to get him excited about playing his songs, not yeah. about, you know, honoring his potential. Um, and so, you know, I, I, so when I saw that, I was like, wow. So this is, this, this was a really palpable thing that then does seem to go in some phases where George, you know, he's got his all things must pass. And then there's like the, all this frenetic activity um, with, you know, starting dark horse eventually and having his own label and getting out of app, you know, all this stuff business stuff and separating personal stuff and 
really separating from the Beatles. I mean, I feel like that's in the DNA of a lot of the songs on All Things Must Pass. And there's just like this intensity to all of that. And then he does kind of then sort of cycle, you know, there's all the intensity of like concert for Bangladesh and, you know, trying to figure out how do you be like a person in public who has, is responsible for all these things that are going on and try to be a good, whatever global citizen. I wouldn't have thought of it that way, but try to be a good human, you know, and, and yet also be like kind of a rock star who could (laughs) go anywhere and do anything and, you know, afford to fly to LA from London as many times as he wanted or whatever, you know, he kind of ran himself ragged a little bit, you know, there's, there's like sort of an ebb and flow to some of his records um, in the seventies. But what was the question? <laughs> I'm, I'm just rambling now. <laughs> so, no, I think you answered it. I mean, it's like yeah. the, the, you know, the connection of where he went from all things, you know, from the Beatles to all things and the things he did beyond that. I think I, you, know, you exactly touched on it. I think he had this, to your point of this built up array of songs that he, you know, put out there and then, and then he went and continued on from there. Well, um, it's yeah. almost like he needed to kind of, I mean, it's, I call it watershed, but it also could be like, a rebirth or whatever. Like he had to go through this thing where he had to, you know, make this big transition. And there was all this wonderful music that came out of that and new connections and new, you know, he got to go play song that he wrote with Dylan. That was never going to be recorded by the Beatles, but so he gets to kind of go establish all this new stuff and then go pursue all those new connections across, you know, handmade films and working with the, pardon, my brain isn't working, the comedy people in oh Monty Python, Monty, Monty Python. Monty Python yeah, yeah. you know like uh, and all these new kind of families to join and that is sort of like I mean he he was you know again we talk about him making those connections like he was really great at that and you know then gets to kind of go wear all those different hats you know when he when he wanted to and then go back to his garden when he needed to despite the you know uh stifling experience he had in the Beatles you know, obviously the success of the Beatles enabled him to explore sure. all those different avenues of his creativity that he frankly wouldn't have been able to just as a regular, you know, person, even a successful solo artist. I just feel like what he did with uh, his exploration of Indian music and stuff. I mean, that's not cheap, you know? No. And he really, I mean, he, he had a whole, you know, he got a, a an, his own imprint to be able to release things that he felt invested in that way and, and wanted to bring um, people's attention to. I, I'm, and, you know, obviously I mean, he toured with the Ravi Shankar and friends, like they, they would come out and play before George. And, you know, I'm sure it was like kind of a little strange for his Beatley fans to be like, what is, <laughs> we're going to have to go, um, you know, see this music we're not familiar with in order to get to see, George and maybe he'll do tax van. So um, and from what I was reading on that too, they were saying how it was really heavily uh, weighted, you know, so it's not like you were seeing, you know, five or six, you know, 20 minutes of Ravi, you know, you were seeing a whole lot. Yeah. So, So, Oh, we've only got five minutes. Yeah. We have, we got uh, five minutes left with you. So we um, don't want to run out of time. So we want to just say thank you for um, coming on with us and, I wanted to mention that uh, the airings when your show is on, is that all right? If I, uh, sure, of course, of, of course. Yeah. So Dark Horse Radio is on Sirius XM on the Beatles channel, and it's on Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern with encore uh, airings on Saturdays at 11 p.m. 
Sundays at 4 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 a.m. all times Eastern. Uh, is there anything else? Because first of all, this is not what you do primarily. Is there anything <laughs> else you want to tell us about? Well, I want. I just want to say more. I, you had asked a question in the email. I just want to say that I feel incredibly lucky to have been able to work with the Harrison Estate um, because they have a really, they want the show to be as um, accurate and reflective of George's own passion for his music as it can be. And so I've learned a lot by being able to work with them. And um, Don Fleming is the is the archivist for the Harrison estate. And he and I primarily work together on the script. So, I mean, he's, I don't work on them. I, you know, get to deliver them, but, but that's been a wonderful education for me. And, um, and it's just, you know, it's been such a cool, I never, you know, I, some people would think of me as like the Kitty Wells lady or the country women in country music lady. So it's, it's a cool element of music that I didn't think I was going to get to, you know, get to work with that I really have appreciated. So thank you so much for having me on your podcast to talk a little bit about it. And if you ever want to do another podcast episode about Kitty Wells or any of the women of country music, you know where to find me. So well, you know how passionate I am about that music. And that's something that I'm trying to talk Bill into for season three. And I was wondering, and maybe I'm putting you on the spot, but I think you have a new album coming out next Yes, spring, we right? will. We do. We will have a new record next spring. Um, it's been the result of a of a um, you know crowdfunding that we did over the last couple of years. It's taken me forever to get it finished, but um, yeah, I'm very excited. It'll be the first new product since before the pandemic, so um, it'll, it's about time. And I'll be ready and willing and able to come talk about that um, and and have more fun with you guys in your in your pod zone. <laughs> Great. Sounds awesome. <laughs> well, thanks, Laura. It's been a delight. All right. Thanks, guys. All right, Tone. So now that we've been schooled by Laura, uh, I, I have to say it was a it was a pleasure getting to talk to her. She, she had so much insight that I didn't really have, you know, before talking to her. Uh, it was was a lot of fun. Yeah, what a blast! And you know, we know I've known Laura for for eight years now uh, from her own music, and and you've gotten to know her music, and we've gotten to talk to her a lot uh, at her own. Uh, gigs and and what a blast just to talk to her about something different other than her traditional folk country americana music it was really great all right so we are going to because this is a really long uh, technically triple album we're going to do our combo song draft track review and pick top 12 correct yep all right uh, so last week we did the Jesse combo draft where you and I teamed up. Um, so this week it's back to you, you versus me. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe that I had the first pick the last time that we had uh, an album other than with Jesse. So I think it's your, you're going to get first pick, but let me just remind everyone what our song draft is. So every week, the album that we do, Tony and I do a song draft. We go through the tracks of the album. And we each pick, we alternate picks, and we, we create a roster of songs, a little team of songs. And Tony thinks his team of songs is going to be better than my team. And I know that my team of songs is going to be better than Tony's. So at the end, we like to talk some smack to each other. And we then put it out to a vote for our fans. So we, we put in our show description, our, our, our episode description uh, on, on our podcast, a link to a, a song draft poll. And we ask our listeners to please click the link. And vote for who you think won the song draft so we can 
get to a resolution of who actually did a better job. All right, Bill, thanks a lot for that. And I will lead us off with What is Life? This is one of the songs that sounds like a question, but there's no punctuation. So I'm not sure how I should be pronouncing it. What is life? What is, what life? is life? But it's What is Life? And I just love this song. I love the guitar hook that opens the song. It's just super catchy. And, and then you bring in uh, the great horns. I, I really can't believe what great uh, horns are throughout this album. It's, it's fantastic. And uh, just as far as a, a favorite line here is, you know, tell me what is life without your love? Tell me who am I without you by my side? Just a beautiful line. Love the guitar opening of this song phenomenal song it was I, I i had a coin toss for my top two songs and it was like one in one a and that was that was one of them oh i can't wait to know because i had a coin toss too for one in one a so what's yours uh so my first pick is wawa ah! <laughs> same <laughs> and I, I, if i had to order them i would order i got the one i wanted uh-huh. uh so you got the one you wanted i got the one i wanted but they were one in one a for me uh-huh. um and on an album that is a phenomenal, you know, three album, uh, you know, masterclass on music, um, Wawa is a just killer song that it, it almost has a McCartney-esque vibe to it. Like it's it's got a little bit of kind of McCartney Beatles, but it's it's George's take on like on that rock type of song. I, I love it. So in in classic Tony fashion, you know, I just. Uh... I don't know if I just don't know how to strategize these, but personally, if I had to be honest, I'd say Wawa is actually my 1A. <laughs> but I was gambling. I was saying, what is life is certainly going to be in his top two. And maybe Wawa isn't in his top two. And I was hoping I would get it at number three. But Wawa is actually my favorite song on this album. Love that. I love that song. And, and, you know, this is, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier in the show that this is, you know, the guitar riff on Wawa is all kinds of Layla Clapton vibes. It, it is a killer rock song. Killer rock song. And I just love, and I don't know if this is true, but, you know, we do know that this song was written when he had taken a break from the Beatles. And the lyrics really sound like a, you know, almost like sticking it to the guys. Like, I don't know, like, I don't need you guys. I don't need your crying. Mm-hmm. I don't need your wah-wah. Right? Yeah. So. <laughs> and, and what, you know, so you've got that great guitar. You've got the great horns, like we were talking about on What Is Life. Love, love the horns on this one, too, but, yeah. But the uh, added bonus here is, like, a really cool, prominent bluesy keyboards on here. Just the music on this song is so good. Yeah. All right, Tone, number three. So, look. I have to do it because it was our wedding song. I'll be honest, it's not my third favorite song, but I'm going to go, if not for you. Um, It's the Dylan cover that we talked about. It's the better version, in my opinion. Um, And it's interesting. You can tell it's a Dylan cover. You know, he he didn't have to do the harmonica in there, but I guess, you know, sort of a hat tip is, is my imagination on why he did it. And, uh, you know, the, the lyrics are a little corny, to be honest, but... It's, you know, it's lovely and sweet. And, and you know, it's kind of weird. You, you're the big Dylan fan. But this song and then um, there's another song later on that Dylan co-wrote are, are kind of corny love songs. And 
that's not what I think of when I think of Dylan. But you have to remember the period of time that the writing was going on. This is post. This is Dylan recovering from his motorcycle accident, uh-huh. spending time with the band in Woodstock. This is this is like a different Dylan mindset. So. Okay, so that explains that. So you went off my board. I didn't have that song in my top twelve. Well, I told you why. I, I it's I like you know again love the love the album, like that song, but it wouldn't have been in my uh, in my picks. Um, I'm going to go with the art of dying as my as my next pick. Um, it it that was like if there was a one in one a with Wawa and and what is life, that might almost be one C. Um, the art of dying, like the, the the way that the the song builds the the lyrics, the the musicality of it, I I love the song. Yeah, I'll tell you when I was listening to it, I was picking up. Uh, Hazy Shade of Winter from Simon and Garfunkel. I, I definitely get that. I also I also get um, Live and Let Die a little bit. Um, so there, there's there's a few few like mm. different kind of feelings to it. Which such a good song, and and I have to uh, give shouts out to Colleen because she had this uh, to say about Art of Dying. She goes, "It's yearning that never gets there." Yeah, and, yeah, uh, it builds like, but it doesn't quite get there. Yeah, yeah I completely yeah. agree. All right, so man, Bill, you're killing me. So. I mean, I'm in, I've dug myself I mean, a I mean, hole. I'm in your head, dude. Yeah, I'm you, in your head. <laughs> you know what? You kind of are. Uh, so my next pick is going to be My Sweet Lord. That's, that was my number four. Yeah, that's, that's a great pick. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about this. Uh, I can't remember which show. Probably the Rolling Stone show, I think, uh, when we were talking about uh, uh, the, the lawsuit here. But some people say that you can clearly hear the similarities. I've tried. I just I don't hear it uh, with um, uh, the chiffons and and um, he's so fine. What do you think? Um, I do. So I actually listened to it like three times this morning, and it's it's just pieces. So you you can hear it in pieces. It's not like it's not the whole melody. It's not whatever. But there are snippets, and specifically, you know the 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 piece with the he's so fine and and my sweet lord it it really does sound similar um but it's it's not the whole song like he takes maybe a, a piece of it and and builds a, a, his own song around it again building songs around you know li- little sounds like i don't see that as stealing or or, or whatever or i see it unintentionally as, copying yeah. as the judge said yeah i guess maybe i get i i don't hear it because i get that opening guitar hook that starts the song is what i always love immediately hear love the opening of that song yeah. and and to me that's the song so i don't and, necessarily and, hear and i have to say that when i first listened to this album it was the song i knew and it was the song that made me fall in love with this album so my sweet lord is the song that made me fall in love with this album absolutely love the song and just to close the loop on that uh, lawsuit, uh, the way George dealt with it, besides you know paying out whatever he paid out to the publishers, was he bought the rights to the song. So <laughs> no more lawsuits. Forget, forget you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, what's next? All right, um, so I am going to go let it down as my next pick. Um, so it was. Th- this is one where I, I really had to think about this a little bit because I it, it is. It's my number five song, and I'm getting it at number six. But there, there were a couple of potential choices for me there. But I, I really love the song. Again, there's a, there's a, a guitar component to the song that just blows me away, and and that's why I pick it. 
This song is, is so interesting. Um, I had it at number six, too, so um, I feel similarly. Um, it opens with that wall of sound, yep. but then immediately morphs into this smooth jazz thing. Well, did you listen to the alt version, the, no. the other recording? So if you listen to the deluxe, there's two versions of it. Uh-huh. It, it, listen, listen to the to, to the sec- secondary. It removes the wall of sound. It's really cool. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I, I was confused by that, thinking I was getting one thing, and then immediately getting something so different. Yeah. Um, but then it, when you get to the chorus uh, and at the end, it does rock out again. Yeah. So it's really yep. an interesting progression on the song. Yep. All right. So now it's me. I'm gonna go. Isn't it a pity? Uh, and the first version, because there are two versions on yep. this as well. Yep, love it. So that's right, right around where I had it as well. Yeah. Um, lo- love that song, and it's it's a kind of brooding. He's, there's there's a few brooding ish songs on this album, and th- this is one of them. And I, I absolutely love the track. This is one of his early solo songs that he wrote all the way back in uh, 1966. He submitted it to the band, and John. John rejected it. Isn't it a pity how we break each other's hearts, yeah. uh, you know, and 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 cause each other pain? Like it's such, like when I listen to this song, when I'm in a melancholy kind of mood, this is a song like yeah. I, I like I gravitate towards. It's really only two short verses. Yeah, you know, it's it's I think it's maybe a total of fifty words. You know, it's very concise, and it's so. I guess perfect that John would reject this song, which is almost like a, a pleading song <laughs> to him yeah. or to him and Paul. You yeah. know, I mean, what yeah. are we doing? Com- completely um, agree. So um, the, this first version is the seven-minute version, and and I like it better. And it's interesting that uh, Derek and the Dominoes and uh, and that album with Layla comes out in the same year as this, because this song is almost exactly as long as Layla. And I found that it had a similar construction in that the first half is the the song with the lyrics. And then you get this whole second half, like a three and a half minute, like outro almost with a whole um, musical piece uh, to it. So it really, um, you know, the the parallels to to Clapton and and Derek and the Dominoes really play out in this song as well. So Tone, I'm going to completely rewrite my board right now. Uh, so I, I am crossing out where I had a song ranked, and my next pick is "Beware of Darkness." Um, I'm sticking with the melancholy. I love the lyrics of this song, mm-hmm. um, and and specifically the the struggle and and how it really comes across in this song. Absolutely love this song. Uh, so I I have it on my list as well. And for me, there are two songs in this album that give me huge hunky dory vibes. Very specifically, Hunky Dory, um, and and this is one of them. I, I, I feel like if you had Bowie sing this, you could drop it on Hunky Dory, and it would fit right in. Well, re- remember that when we did the Hunky Pod, the Hunky Pod, um, <laughs> the you know the production of this was after all things, and they mm-hmm. really kind of had an all things must pass type vibe on some of the stuff. So George came first. Mm-hmm. All right, so you went Beware of Darkness. Completely blew up my board tone. Yeah. I'm going to go All Things Must Pass. Nice. So how do you feel about the title track? I really, you know, I like it, and maybe it just caught me on the right day because uh, today is the day after uh, James and Ellie's uh, 14th birthdays, and and I had just uh, 
you know, read an article by Michael Gerson, uh, the Washington Post uh, columnist who passed away two days ago and, and talking about the, the sadness of kids growing up and then just ruminating on um, our short time on this world and how it's just comical how, you know, how small our existence is compared to the existence of, of the universe. And I guess I had that in mind. I had the kids in mind. And then this all things must pass um, is just uh, another uh, meditation on the, the fleetingness of life. Yeah. No, beautiful song. I can't argue with the pick. All right. I'm going away from my board again. Now that I, t- now that I turned it upside down, let's stick with it. Uh, hear me, Lord. All right. I didn't have that on here. Um, tell me about why you've got it. So, again, kind of a spiritual feeling to the song and you know you've got a lot of spirituality on this on this album um and it's it's you know really george showing his his hindu spirituality and it's a cool song it's got a cool vibe to it um and it's catchy so yeah and i don't know i mean obviously we know his the hindu influences but i think that there's at least four songs here that are just spiritual in nature and um, you could drop them into a church service today as is, completely agree. and they'd be very powerful and meaningful. Yeah, completely agree. And I, this is for me, this is one of them. So yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah, the one that I was thinking about, but I didn't go with was Awaiting on You All as well. Yeah. And to me, that was, uh, I described it as a, a church hymn disguised as a rock song. Yep. Yep. Um, all right. So Hear Me, Lord is Bill's fifth selection. Right. All right. Last pick, Tom. What do you got? All right. So I'm going to pick the Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp. Wow. And I'll be honest with you. I don't know if I really have it in my top uh, 12, but I wanted to talk about this this song because as I was looking into it, it's such a cool story. So do you know anything about Sir Frankie Crisp? I I don't. So... um, so first of all, the album is it has a it has a really unique sound for this for this album because there were a number of songs which sound like you could group songs together like you know so we've got a couple of the hunky dory songs you've got the Clapton songs you've got the Dylan songs you've got the spiritual songs this one is uh, to me an outlier altogether it's its own thing so it sounded cool it sounded different um, and I like that but then as I was looking into what the heck is a Sir Frankie Crisp Turns out that um, it's Sir Francis Crisp was the original owner of Friar Park, which is where the picture's taken for the cover. The, the picture's taken. That's his estate. He um, Olivia still uh, owns and lives there. Uh, owns it and lives there today. And so, um, so he didn't buy it from uh, Frankie Crisp, but Frankie Cr- Sir Frankie Crisp was jeez. Uh, Sir Francis Crisp, the, the album, uh, the song calls it Frankie Crisp, but Sir Francis Crisp, he was the original owner, and he was a lawyer and a noted horticulturist. And he built these beautiful gardens on the grounds, including a replica of the Matterhorn. The mansion and the gardens are both separately listed on the National Heritage List. So these are uh, important sites, both the house itself and the gardens. So when Sir Francis Crisp died, he passed it on to, or he sold it to somebody else, and then that guy got divorced and ran into financial trouble, and then it ultimately ended up with nuns who were running a school. 
but the mansion and the school and the property was in a state of disrepair and it was being slated to be demolished and George bought it in order to save it. So to save the house and the grounds, he bought it. And so that's where his family still lives today. But that's not the end of the story. So um, we talked with Laura about how he was a big Monty Python fan, right? We did. So when Monty Python was making Life of Brian, the shoot went so over budget, the production company walked. They said, we're out. We're not going to give you another dime. Uh, We're done. And George was a big fan of them. He put up Friar Park as collateral in order for them to finish the movie. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So I thought that that was a a super cool story. And then besides the song being uh, inspired by Francis Crisp, two other songs that he records later on, not on this album, include lyrics taken directly from speeches that Francis Crisp wrote. So he was definitely uh, impacted by those grounds. And then later on, The Man. And the last note I'll make is that uh, in 1999, you might remember that he was a victim of a home invasion. I do, yeah. And so it was at Friar Park where um, he was attacked and he was stabbed five times, including a punctured lung. Well, I, I didn't have it on my board, but it is a cool song. And that's a great story. Yeah. All right. So last pick. Couldn't not pick it. Such a jam. I dig love. love. (laughs) Can't not pick it. I had it higher up on my board. I'm thrilled to get it as my last pick. Thrilled. Uh, Well, I'm very happy for you. I don't dig I dig love. (laughs) Love that song. It's such a cool jam. And here's the thing, I, like I actually really debated picking something from the third album, the, the Apple Jam, mm-hmm. um, because the, the songs on the Apple Jam are just so freaking cool. Between Plug Me In, I Remember Jeep, and Thanks for the Pepperoni, I love all three of those songs from a guitar jam perspective. And just remembering who's playing on this freaking you know, album, um, just amazing, amazing tracks, but... Um, I had to stay kind of true to not picking just kind of a jam, jam tracks and go with I Dig Love. Cool. Well, being true to yourself. That's how you uh, end up winning these things all the time. Well, I think we picked a really cool grouping of 12 songs from a, a, an amazing triple album. Yeah, I agree. And, and I guess that kind of leads us to our final thoughts. I'll tell you that I have owned this you know, CD uh, for decades. I had never listened to it ever once. You know, I I put it in, listened to a couple of tracks, but never listened to the uh, entire album. And and I've just really enjoyed this past week getting to know this uh, album. It's really, really good. And I'll say for for my final thoughts, it was actually, you know, when I started going through all of the albums on the 500, I, you know, there were some albums where I was like, oh man, I'm I'm going to make it through this. You know, it's a, it's a really long, I look at the times of the albums before I start them. Oh man, this is over two hours. This is a really long album. And it was the first time I listened to it, the two hours flew by and I was hooked. Like it was just an amazing experience. It was almost a spiritual experience. and the spirituality of the music, really how George was able to really tell a story in three albums 
that I thought knit together really well. Uh, you know, the, the jam part of it is kind of separate. So I, mm-hmm. I feel like it's really a two album yeah. story. And then you've got this right. you know, jam album, which is just amazing. Uh, but I felt like it, I connected with it right off the bat. The spirituality, the, you know, the, the melancholy pieces, the, the, the rock of it. And it, it instantly has become one of my favorite albums of all time. And, and you know, just loved the album. Well, on that note, why don't you tell us, where does it rank? Well, Tony, you and I were talking before we started recording today, and I have moved this album probably about 10 times because, you know, I'm a freak about trying to get it right in my own head and order my list. Um, it is in my top 30. So I rate this album as my number 28 album of all time. I think it is, you know, just completely a travesty that it's rated where it is by Rolling Stone's list. Um, I understand they have an eclectic group of artists who do their rankings and you know, maybe it doesn't resonate with some of the, the younger artists that are, are doing the rankings, but I, I would challenge them to listen to the damn album. Um, it is a phenomenal album, and I think it resonates today just as much as it did back in 1970. All right. Well, that takes us to the end of our show. Thank you for listening to uh, Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure. Our next episode will be... We're going to do 1989 by Taylor Swift. Wait, 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 wait. We're doing Red by Taylor Swift. Dude. We agreed. We're doing 1989 by Taylor Swift. I think I was coerced when we first started talking about doing Taylor. We agreed that we were going to do Red. So, so, so you know what? I think we should just change things up. Well, what do you mean? You know what? You like Red. I like 1989. It's like peanut butter and chocolate. Let's put them together. Oh, man. I love me some <laughs> peanut butter and chocolate. <laughs> I love this. So why don't we just do a whole like smackdown of which album is better? All right. I think that's great. We'll have to figure out how we're going to do this because, you know, we're, we're not going to do a double show, but... Um, we can talk. <laughs> and if you're telling me that I'm going to have to listen to 1989 and Red for the next week, that's not the worst thing in the world. No, I'm, I'm instantly looking forward to it. Although, although I am a little worried about your emo take on, on, you know, a certain track on Red and that you're going to whip out your, your guitar and start crying. And I, I'm a little worried, Tom. Ellie calls me country emo dad. <laughs> well, right. We'll talk about that more next yeah, week. Yeah, sounds good. All right. So thanks, everyone, for joining us. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.